Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm going to start talking while you're sitting down to save time. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I always get particular pleasure saying welcome to the Financial Times. And uh, as ever, I'm incredibly grateful to them for being our partner, to Lionel Barber for chairing this morning, and to somebody who you may not know, but she's responsible really for us being partnered with the Financial Times, Emma Gilpin-Jacobs, so thank you to her. Uh, we were incredibly oversubscribed for this morning, and I was anxious that I would feel like the chief executive of EasyJet having to explain why 37 people were asked to vacate the plane, but it hasn't happened. Um, I will say two things. One is that for those of you who are not familiar with the EI Club, it's simply a forum for people such as yourselves to come and hear incredibly significant topical voices of the day in good company. And to say that it is all on the record and recorded for posterity, so it is very late to feel like a shy retiring violet but don't put your hand up and speak if you feel like that. And on that note, I will hand to someone who is not a shy retiring Violet because he presides over one of the most successful newspaper and media empires anywhere, and it is the much-garlanded uh, guru himself, Lionel Barber. Lionel. Okay, thank you very much, Julia. Happy New Year to you all. Uh, we have a stellar panel uh, this morning, uh, comprised of... Uh, Top-class ex-civil servants, widely recognised here, Baroness Shrita Vadira. We have Lord Adonis to my left, former Transport Secretary, widely regarded as the most effective minister in the last government. Uh, we have to my immediate right, Gillian Tett, the US Managing Editor of the Financial Times, uh, an award-winning journalist and author, and ladies and gentlemen, newly acclaimed film star. She is uh, alongside Matt Damon uh, in a new film called Inside Job. Um, she's vying for one of the leading parts with Martin Wolf, who has a, another part in that particular film. Watch out for it. And to my immediate right, um, he needs no introduction at all. One of the uh, most highly regarded figures in the City of London, Terry Smith, um, former chief executive at Colin Stewart and uh, Talit Prebon, and now has launched his own uh, investment fund, fund management business, Fundsmith. And that's the end of the ad advertorial. Okay, Thank fine. Thanks. Okay. Um, now, I'm supposed to give a brief introduction on the year of 2011 and then make a couple of predictions. So, um, in short, two themes, perhaps, that we should consider for 2011, uh, which will be um, themes enduring throughout the year, which is the rebalancing and finding a new uh, equilibrium between debtors and creditors. And that plays out whether through uh, looking at US and China, the global imbalances, through to the Eurozone, um, and, of course, the, uh, the banks particularly in Europe, where we know many of them are still in very bad shape, but they haven't actually admitted to as much. Second theme, of course, is uh, the, the fact that um, 
to use a metaphor, contracts uh, have been and are being redrawn uh, in terms of your pensions, in terms of public sector workers, many of whom are going to lose their jobs this year. But somehow, when it comes to debt and banks and bonds, these contracts seem to be inviolate. And I would suggest that how we deal with that contradiction is going to be another important theme for 2011. Now, predictions. Julia wanted me to sum up the world in five minutes. Um, I guess I would, I would, I would offer the, the following prediction. This will be the year of no breakup. So no breakup of the Eurozone and no breakup of the coalition. I'm trying to think of a third, but I can't. Uh, on that note, positive note, cautious optimism, American recovery, it's fragile, but it's happening. It was in the States over Christmas. So there's a little, there's an important glimmer of hope. Whatever you hear about China, the real key economy is what is happening in the United States. And I think there you're seeing things turn. We'll hear from Gillian in a minute. So that's me. Now over to Terry Smith. Terry, you have three and a half minutes from now. Three and a half minutes. Well, I'll, I'll start with the, uh, the movie theme, which uh, Lionel struck there. Uh, sequels are rarely as good as the original movie, I think is one of the rules of cinema. Uh, and so it is with quantitative easing too. Uh, quantitative easing, what was it meant to achieve? Uh, it was meant to uh, keep bond yields low uh, and by so doing provide a stimulus through a, uh, partly through a wealth effect to the economy which would help uh, revive the housing market uh, and would uh, help with the, the problems of persistent unemployment in the West. Uh, it's uh, serially failed with all of those objectives, it seems to me. Bond yields obviously rose fairly sharply at the end of last year. Uh, the housing market on both sides of the Atlantic is at best stuttering uh, and may even be heading towards some sort of double dip. Uh, and unemployment is persistently high. Ironically, the only area, only category in the United States where employment is rising uh, is in fact government employees, which seems rather ironic in the light of uh, the cause of these difficulties. Uh, of course, what it has managed to do is, in the law of unintended consequences, is, uh, is promote inflation. It's clearly one of the factors uh, that underlie the sharp rise in food prices, uh, in cotton prices, in oil prices, and the prices of shares. And I think that, uh, I rather suspect, is, uh, is one of the great problems for, uh, for 2011, is the unintended consequences of quantitative easing, uh, which have occurred uh, because uh, basically it's gone into the uh, stimulating things other than those which are intended. Uh, the Eurozone was clearly the story of 2010, at least so far, a bit early, but it continues to be the story of 2011. Uh, I'm indebted to one member of the audience for the phraseology of at least what I'm going to say, which is um, it seems to me at the start of the Eurozone crisis, the, uh, one, of the, one of the great cries was uh, Ireland, not Iceland. Uh, Iceland was uh, the country which had allowed banks to default, and, uh, and Ireland were the people who were taking their, uh, their medicine uh, and, uh, and going for the, uh, uh, the deflation and austerity uh, methodology. It seems to me that this is changing around, and what we're likely to hear people say at some point is Iceland, not Ireland, uh, because Iceland actually has a growing economy now, having allowed its banks to, to fail. It seems to me that the quote, solution to a crisis where you lend a country more money at a higher rate of interest is one that would never apply in the private sector in refinancing. If a company got into difficulties in the private sector, uh, people before they were put in any more money would want to know how big a haircut the existing creditors were taking. 
So at some point, I think we have to accept that some form of default is going to have to occur to produce a genuine solution to this crisis. Uh, and so that's what I think may occur during the course of 2011. China, I think, is also possibly the story for 2011. It's got uh, inflation. It's clearly got elements of a property bubble uh, with uh, uh, ghost towns in both housing and ghost malls in terms of retail and shopping. Uh, should it fall over, it will clearly make a very loud bang. There's no doubt about that, notwithstanding uh, the view that the United States is the, uh, the largest and most important economy. Uh, again, I'm indebted to somebody in the audience. Now I recall something else they said. And uh, for, the, for the factoid that China's capital goods imports are, in fact, bigger than the combination of the United States, the Eurozone, and Japan. Um, so if it falls over, it will definitely make a very loud bang. Uh, will it fall over? Well, people tell you it can't. Um, I'd like to point out, during my working lifetime, if we just deal with the Asia-Pacific zone, I was told in the 1980s that the Japanese economy was, quotes, unstoppable. And I was told in the 1990s that the tiger economies were unstoppable. Both of them came to a grinding and, uh, and rather spectacular halt shortly after being told they're unstoppable. So I think there's every possibility. And I think China is, uh, is in a policy bind. Uh, does it put up interest rates to try and clear its inflationary problem? In so doing, putting upward pressure on the renminbi uh, and also cutting into its, uh, its trade surplus, which is already under quite a lot of pressure because of those imports? Or does it keep rates low uh, and try and keep the renminbi low and stoke inflation even further? And I don't think there's an easy way out of that. Uh, and at the end, staying with the, the movie theme, I would say my uh, prediction for 2011 is the King's Speech will win the Oscars. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Terry. Is <clears throat> that three and a half minutes? Excellent. Right on time. I just would make one point uh, with apologies to the, or at least, uh, yes, apologies to the BBC, that uh, the Chinese Vice Premier, who did come to London and made an important visit and was said uh, on, I was there on Tuesday night, uh, sorry, Monday night, that he was confident that they would, could deal with the inflation problem, they were happy to raise interest rates, and they had all the tools they needed. But... Even though he's been handing out a lot of money on his trip to Europe, he is not, as the BBC says, Li Keqing, as in a tech, as in a cash box. It's Li Keqiang. So just, there we are. Um, well, I guess I feel that it's um, such an uncertain and uncharted time in the global economy that the only thing you can be sure about predictions <coughs> is that they're going to be wrong. Um, so I'm not sure you should be paying much attention to uh, any of us up here. Um, I'd like to go down the well-trodden issues of the Eurozone crisis and global imbalances. Um, it seems to me that the Eurozone crisis will dominate 2011 because we haven't really got to the end game. And until policymakers can, first of all, show some ability to make decisions, but also to make the right decisions and to get to a comprehensive, final, complete line-in-the-sand solution. This will just trundle along and, you know, un until the market sort of forces incrementally uh, measures. And I know that there's speculation to just today that Germany is going to move and do something, but the question is, what are they going to do? And the one thing that I feel that is continuing to happen is all of the policymakers are spending their time on the defiance of gravity. Uh, as Terry said, you wouldn't really do this in, in this way in the private sector, but actually also in sovereign debt crisis. If you look at the Latin American crisis, you look at the Asian debt crisis, you look at uh, debt in Africa, in the end, you cannot solve a solvency issue with a liquidity solution. 
um, it's it's not going to um, it's going to the longer you leave it the worse the problem actually gets. The greater the nominal debt increases, the greater the burden that has to be placed at the end. So this fear of fragility um, that is driving um, the, the policy makers, the decision makers, is actually the fragility is already with us. Um, they have this notion that by 2013 you can have a bail-in um, solution. That's like saying we will have all of the pain of the uncertainty with none of the gain of the debt reduction now. A friend of mine who I worked with um, on debt restructurings in the 1980s sort of said it's like saying to, that you're going to hang somebody in the afternoon after lunch and you tell them so they can't enjoy their lunch either. So it's, you know, it doesn't really gain you anything at all. Um, the, the issue of global imbalances, I think, is not something that's kind of big headline it's out there, but I think it does dominate. I spent most of 2010, in fact, in Asia. It's very buoyant. It's very confident. Um, clearly, the center of gravity has moved. There is a palpable shift in the power balance. You can see it in, in the individual negotiations in a very painful, emotional way sometimes when you see the discussions between people. But unfortunately, they're not decoupled. They're not as decoupled as they think they are from, from uh, Western economies, uh, if you exclude uh, Germany from Western economies for the time being anyway. Um, the first thing is that we have a deficit in, in demand. There's a demand gap. Um, the U we've lost the US as the consumer of last resort. If we get them back as a consumer of last resort, it'll be rather unhealthy, but we've lost them. And we can wax lyrical about uh, emerging market and middle class Households, how they go to dominate, how they consume so much. But actually, the truth is, between 2000 and 2008, China saved 50% of their GDP. They need serious structural reform if they're going to have any consumption that affects at least our economies. So we have a deficit uh, uh, in, 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 in the, not just in fiscal budgets, but we have a demand gap. And in a situation of a demand gap, trade, exports, currencies becomes a zero-sum game. So for me, I think this is going to be the year of a new protectionism that could be through currency wars, currency chaos, uh, you know, stopping bids, all sorts of new forms of protectionism, even though perhaps not the blatant form of trade protectionism. Um, and that, I think, will lead to a very unhealthy recovery. Yes, we have recovery. Yes, there are signs of recovery everywhere. But there will be this sort of squabbling around and a very volatile, uneven um, year on that basis. Um, I think that because corporates, who are sitting on large surpluses, in fact, very healthy, are chasing uh, emerging markets, uh, we're also going to have insufficient investment in the deficit countries in the, in the US and the UK and others. And that means that's why we're seeing such a jobless recovery in the US, for example. And I think also, therefore, it'll be a year of un, you know, where unemployment um, dominates the theme. So all in all, I'd say, yes, of course there is recovery. But I don't see it as very healthy. Uh, it's quite volatile. And you know, it seems to me, in the, on, you know, do you remember, is it Yogi Berra, the, uh, baseball uh, team manager who sort of said the future ain't what it used to be and that's what I think about the future. He also said if you see a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. <laughs> so it comes up decisive panel here. Um, Andrew Adonis. Thanks, Lionel. Yeah. Um, I, 
want to pick up four themes about Britain in 2011. The first is about the coalition where I agree with Lionel. It's, it's strong and uh, uh, will endure, certainly, for, for 2011. The fact that both of us agree on this prediction means it must certainly be wrong. But uh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, uh, that, that, that's my view. Uh, the great political Houdini Act of 2010 was David Cameron's, who seized victory from the jaws of semi-defeat in the, in the general election. We could, at the moment, either just have had a second general election or be on the verge of one, having had a period of very weak minority Conservative government with both the Liberals and Labour ganging up against it, um, and with uh, it being almost impossible for the government to have produced a credible deficit reduction strategy that could have commanded the confidence of the House of Commons, instead of which, by coming together with Nick Clegg and, crucially, also uh, persuading Nick Clegg, who didn't, in fact, need much persuasion, to go along with his deficit reduction strategy. There's a strong coalition, a clear deficit reduction strategy. There's going to be a lot of pain and grief uh, on the way, both pain and grief in the real world. You know, the news this morning, 2,000 job cuts at Manchester City Council, and that's just the beginning of a huge retrenchment that will take place across the public services, most of Whitehall is at the moment contemplating 30% uh, job losses, the biggest uh, downsizing of, uh, of the public service uh, well, in, in recent history, and that is clearly going to be tough. So it will be tough in the real economy. There will be, um, uh, I would have thought, quite difficult industrial relations as part of it, but the, the government itself looks to me to be stable. If it was able to survive uh, the tuition fees crisis, where the Liberals had to do a complete about turn on what was the the, uh, the most uh, uh, prominent policy that they had in the election, I cannot at the moment foresee things that would happen in 2011 that would cause them uh, uh, to walk away from it. And the other crucial thing, because self-interest is what drives politicians to a considerable degree, the, the Lib Dems have nowhere to go. However bad things get for them with the Conservatives, the prospect of an early election is simply for them the prospect of oblivion. And so even those on the left of the Lib Dems who will come steadily to dislike even more and become more vocal in their opposition to what uh, the government is doing, they have just as little interest in an early election as the team around Clegg who are going into this uh, in, a, in a positive spirit. So the coalition looks to me to be safe. Secondly, the constitution. Uh, if you're sitting in the House of Lords as I am at the moment, literally your every waking hour you're there is spent debating constitutional reform at the moment. There's a whole raft of huge constitutional reforms taking place. The rewriting of public bodies, the rewriting of parliamentary constituencies, fixed term parliaments, the referendum on the alternative vote that's taking place uh, this year, the uh, uh, legislation rewriting relations between central and local government that's about to, to be debated, and then uh, uh, the pièce de résistance is uh, reform of the House of Lords itself. Uh, proposals for that come round about once a century. They preoccupy Parliament for usually two or three years at a time, uh, and they usually fail, and then it's left for another century and carries on. We seem to be going into that into that cycle again. It, picking out what matters from this is quite significant, is quite difficult, but I would say there's one thing that doesn't matter much, and there's one thing that does matter a lot. The referendum on the alternative vote isn't of huge significance. If we had the alternative vote, it would make a big difference to the outcome of elections. It would give somewhat more Lib Dems and somewhat fewer of the other two parties. In fact, actually, if the Lib Dems are a 10% party rather than a 20% party, which is what looks likely for the next election, the alternative vote is in fact irrelevant because the alternative vote will not get them make the difference in terms of transfers between them winning uh, 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 many seats and, and, and winning very few. The crucial thing for them at the next election, if they remain as it looks likely at a 10% party, is whether they have an electoral pact with the Conservatives which is their one way of being able to sustain their numbers. That looks to me to be the party politics of the next 
few years, though of course the, the partners deny it, and that's the real game there. The thing that I think will make a very big difference of the constitutional forms if it's carried, and the one that I'm personally, as director of the Institute for Government, very committed to, is the introduction of elected mayors in the 12 major provincial cities outside London. The governance of the major cities outside London is one of the uh, weakest parts of our constitutional arrangements, and something that holds us back economically and socially more than <coughs> anything else. I've started going and visiting the 12 cities. I was in Bristol last week. Bristol is the only provincial city in England that has a GDP per capita higher than the EU average, which tells you why it's so important that we start getting the governance of our cities, strong leadership, able to mobilize economic development, sort out the public services in these cities successfully. Thirdly, uh, the NHS. Uh, the big mistake I think the coalition is making is at a time of a huge squeeze in health budgets, layering on top of that squeeze a complete uh, upside-down uh, um, rearrangement of the administration of the National Health Service. I simply, and I've been in this game a long time, I simply do not understand why they're doing it. At a time when simply containing the political pressure that there will be, with a bigger real terms squeeze allowing for health inflation on the NHS than at any time in its history, to at the same time be abolishing the entire local administrative structure of the National Health Service and replacing it with another one, which the public will not begin to understand, but involves everybody losing their jobs, new people coming into jobs, a wholly new administrative structure being created. That looks to me to be crazy. Uh, my best advice I could give to the coalition, which from being a former minister, you, you cannot take um, account of too quickly, is when you are hurtling down the wrong path fast, you should simply stop. They should simply scrap these NHS reforms. They should uh, uh, go back to the status quo ante. Fourthly, because I can't resist this as a former transport secretary, this may well be the year of high-speed rail. Those of you who live in the Chilterns uh, will hate me. I have to go there in disguise at the moment <laughs> when I go there because of my plans. But in fact, one of the very welcome aspects of continuity between the last government and this government is uh, the continuation of the plans that I unveiled last March for high-speed rail. Now, this is revolutionary for the infrastructure of this country. Assuming that they do indeed stick by their plans, by 2025, London, Birmingham, 25 minute, uh, thir well, 30 minutes, uh, 35 minutes into the centre, uh, and a transformed set of relations between the major cities in, uh, in England and a trebling of transport capacity. Uh, a, a very welcome example of consensus between the parties on major infrastructure planning for the next generation. I just wish the same could be said for Heathrow. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. You can't entice you to make a little prediction about uh, Ed Miliband for 2011, the most misunderestimated leader in modern times? <laughs> All I can say is, in the first year of being leader of the opposition, nobody pays any attention. It's what the government does that matters. It's only once people start forming a view of the government that they then start turning to the opposition. So I can, I can duck that one completely for the moment. Right. Thank you very much. Gillian Ted. Well, as someone who spent a lot of the last few weeks battling with Heathrow and snowstorms, I note Andrew's point with interest. Um, as Lionel says, an awful lot right now is hanging on the growth outlook in America. And in the last few months, something has been rather odd about the debate about growth in America, which is that until everyone started r raising their forecast for growth in 2011 on the back of the December quasi-stimulus package, um, and when some people are now looking to 3.54%, people were talking about 2 to 2.5% growth in the US. Now, if you went to Japan or Germany and said, you're probably going to have 2.5% growth next year, most people would go, well, hey, fantastic. In America, if you go and say you're going to have 2% growth next year, people start to regard it as a national disaster. 
and there was an awful lot of brow beating and chest beating about this. And it's quite interesting to ask why, because part of the issue is to do with population growth and relative population growth, but there's also a much more subtle point to do with the political economy in America today, which is very important to understanding what's going to happen this year, which is that in the recent decades, um, much of the American political economy has been predicated on permanent high growth, because in contrast to a country like Japan, America at present doesn't have a lot of cultural and political mechanisms to share out pain in a way that ensures everyone buys into society and there's a strong sense of social cohesion. And the question of how you divide up a pie, a stagnant or shrinking pie, doesn't matter if the pie is growing, and certainly the pie has been growing for a lot of the past few decades, and there hasn't been a great sense of resource constraint. There's been a sense that as long as you kept growing, everyone would benefit. You know, if you're running out of land in the east, just go west, young man. Permanent growth. Problem now, of course, is that there is a sense of resource constraint and confidence that the pie will keep growing and starting to falter. And that's exposing all kinds of fault lines which are potentially not just nasty, but going to get worse and worse. Um, you can see some of that in terms of the current debate about the, what they're going to do about the debt problem and the fact that essentially while debt is growing rapidly, there is still very little consensus about how to tackle it and what happened in December was essentially everyone agreed to shelve it. And so essentially the Republicans got tax cuts, the Democrats got more spending. Um, as a result, the economy almost certainly will boom in the next few months, or not sorry, boom, it will certainly grow a bit faster than expected in the next few months. There is a certain degree of optimism amongst many businesses we talk to, um, partly because they're sending on a lot of unused cash. Um, but the longer-term question that hangs over America is if there isn't a sustained growth boom, if the current upturn turns out to be very short-lived, if the new wave of money that the Fed is chucking at the economy doesn't ignite animal spirits in a lasting way, and at the moment much of the Fed's bet is that by chucking quanti quantitative easing into the economy you will get some kind of animal spirits booth, some kind of wealth effect as a result of the rising equity market, if that doesn't happen, then how is America going to cope with the fundamental problem of dividing up a stagnant pie, if not a shrinking pie, in a way that ensures that the wider society buys in? We're seeing the political fallout of that already. There's a tremendous and growing sense of polarization. You can argue till the cows come home about whether the Arizona tragedy reflected that growing political polarization or just the work of a crackpot. But perhaps one of the most striking things about the Arizona political tra um, shooting tragedy was that irrespective of whether it was the work of a crackpot or not, in the debate about whether it was a crackpot or not, that has stirred up even more polarization and anger. And anger and polarization, I think, are going to be two of the key themes for the rest of the year. So quick thoughts on uh, President Obama. He's got a new team. Do you think he's going to have a better 2011 than 2010? Well, he could hardly have a worse one. Um, I think that certainly the um, team around Obama is starting to get his act together more now. Um, I think the appointment of Daly was very smart. It has allowed the Obama administration to reach out and send out a more business-friendly signal. Um, the fact is that if you do talk to companies these days, there is growing sense of optimism at the grassroots about the fact the fact that they're sitting on a lot of cash. If you do a sort of pros and cons balance sheet of what's good, what's bad about the American economy right now, um, they're sitting on a lot of cash. C um, consumers have started to delever to a degree. 
Um, there is a feeling that investment's been rising, that there are, certainly the December um, package did lead some companies to think we can start investing. But um, it's going to be very tough to keep on track when there are these this growing political polarisation. Okay, well, we haven't touched on important sources of instability. Um, mm. Places like, not, not, not as many people would say, Iran could blow up. Look at Tunisia. Look at Arab youth, high unemployment, autocratic regimes facing difficult transitions, Egypt. <coughs> we can come to that perhaps later with questions. But I've just got one thought, um, Terry, if you wouldn't mind just taking a question which might interest From you. the audience. Yes, um, I'll try <laughs> and make it brief, 30 seconds. Um, so, a wise old bird said to me earlier this week that if you were in Britain in 2011, uh, particularly if you lived in the northwest, northeast, heavy reliance on public sector, that you're going to have a grim time. Interest rates may well rise. Uh, but if you're invested in the stock market, actually you might have a reasonable year, and particularly looking at um, British companies, those engineering companies that we often used to sort of write off in the early 1980s. Places, actually, I better not mention any companies, but, but just engineering companies, but now which, which have serious exposure to emerging markets. These companies are actually going to do quite well in 2011. Does that stack up? Um, yes. Briefly, Lionel. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. <laughs> now let's go to the audience. That, uh, uh, in terms of the stimulus that's been applied uh, in quantitative easing and by other methods, it's a lot easier to stimulate a stock market than it is to stimulate an economy. That's the first thing to say, and, um, and, and it's succeeding in that, it's certainly succeeding in that. There you, I've got a great query over whether that wealth effect will then actually let back into producing a real economic stimulus. Uh, so yes, I think you uh, you you have already seen that. I think you will see more of that in terms of markets. You're probably right to identify those sort of companies as well. Uh, you know, the uh, you won't identify, but the weir groups and and so on. You know, people, the, the sort of middle capitalisation UK manufacturing companies that have had a, a pretty turgid sort of post-war period are actually having a much better one as uh, as a result of all that. So yeah, I think you can. But the uh, and you can always have divorces between how markets perform and economies perform in both directions for a number of reasons. Uh, you know the uh, the Chinese A share market has actually performed pretty abysmally, notwithstanding the uh, the alleged continuation of the of the Chinese growth story. So you can get it in both directions, and I think you're right to identify it continuing to be positive here. And Andrew, quickly on the on the regions, I mean, are, is there going to is is Shriti used a, a good word to, uh, decoupling that actually the Asian emerging market economies may think they've decoupled, actually haven't. Uh, she even speculated in a way that. Um, Germany may have decoupled from Europe, an interesting thought. But how far do you think London is now decoupled from the rest of the country? Well, not now. I think it always has been. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a historical feature of this country going back, um, uh, going, going back centuries. Uh, is it going to become more pronounced? I think it will do over the next, uh, if you're looking at 2011, because of the much heavier reliance on the public sector of the cities uh, uh, outside the, the southeast, and therefore the impact of public sector cutbacks is likely to be much more pronounced there. I think that is going to be a, a very significant factor in the politics and uh, economics of 2011. Okay, we're going to take some, we're going to go interactive. Um, questions to the audience. There's a gentleman there in the middle. Could, could you just say who you are and, and ask the, que the question rather than the statement? Thank you. 
Uh, sure. Um, uh, with all respect to Yogi Berra, perhaps we could hear a little bit more. You touched on uh, uh, political risk about the unknown unknowns that the panel sees in 2011. I'm thinking particularly of what we really know about the likely succession in Saudi Arabia at some point and in Egypt, for example. Who wants to take the set? Ah, we have an expert on the um, Middle East here sitting to my left. What do you think about succession in Saudi Arabia? Um, what can you tell well, us? I mean, first of all, just by definition, we can't talk about unknown unknowns because then they wouldn't be unknown. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, while they have put in place a succession plan, it's, it's uh, I think, unfortunate that the succession plan is of uh, three people in a row who are all over the age, I think, of 75. I can't remember, uh, more or less. Um, but I think that the fact that they can actually get to the point of being transparent and having some degree of reforms is, in fact, reasonably positive. Um, I think, for me, the known unknown or the unknown known, whichever way, is, in fact, Pakistan. And that is the one that I would worry about the most. It is, um, it is now the epitome of a fragile state in every sense of the word, and we can't possibly think about um, Afghanistan without thinking about Pakistan. We can't think about drugs wars without Pakistan. We can't think about as terrorism. Is that all of those things are hinging on it, and it seems to me to be a country really um, falling apart um, at the seams, much in a much more dramatic way than it has been in a more gradual way over the last few years. That's one. Um, three thoughts. One. Um, King Abdullah's likely to successor is, is, will be more conservative, not uh, more liberal. King Abdullah's made some efforts in that direction. It's going to get worse. Second, I, I referred to Tunisia. You need to look at Libya, a potential succession problem. There's certainly more acute Egypt. And third, South Sudan. If that goes wrong, then you're not going to see just a, a problem of a, another failing state there but a knock-on effect in Chad all the way through across to West Africa. So these are the kind of semi-unknown knowns, if you like. Can I just add one thing, though, which is that, um, you know, if there's one theme for the current era, it's fear of black swans in the markets. And one thing that's changed in the last three years is that whereas people used to think strange, horrible things could happen in away, faraway places, they can ignore it, you know, post-financial crash, everyone's aware that the worst-case scenario can come true in many ways. Um, and there's tremendous undercurrent of concern in New York about geopolitical risk and the kind of things that could suddenly, um, uh, suddenly damage market sentiment very badly. Next question. Uh, we've got two. Uh, let, why don't we take the two questions there, Andrew and then the gentleman in front. We'll take two. Andrew Cook. My question is for Lord Adonis. In his previous guise as Transport Secretary and his, with his specialist knowledge, uh, you mentioned High Speed 2 and Heathrow Airport. Why is High Speed 2 not going via Heathrow Airport? And will any government in the foreseeable future grasp the nettle and build a proper airport in the Thames estuary to replace Heathrow? No. You can really think about that question because oh, we're going to have one more gentleman. Uh, Neil Collins, um, one word which hasn't been mentioned in the uh, thought for the year ahead is inflation. Um, are we happy to see our money being lent to governments for 3 or 4% for 10 or 20 years? 
um, at a time when they're all printing it like it's going out of fashion. Mm. Um, this is surely something which could blow up spectacularly. Some of us are old enough to have seen it before. Um, and I would like the panel's views on where they see inflation going. Fine. Andrew, do you want to take a, the uh, um, HS2? The estuary airport certainly won't happen. There's a whole set of technical, economic, funding, political reasons why, which I could bore you with, but I won't. I mean, you just have you want my view. It, it won't happen. Uh, Heathrow and the high-speed line. The high-speed line will go within 10 minutes of Heathrow. It will have a junction at Old Oak Common, which is one stop out of Paddington on Crossrail, 10 minutes on uh, the... Uh, Heathrow Express to Heathrow. Why will it, the high-speed line itself not go to the heart of Heathrow? Three reasons. Firstly, there isn't such a place as Heathrow. As you all know, there are five terminals, three big terminal centres. Where would you put the station? The uh, airport operator itself can't even decide where's the best place to put it. Wherever you put it, most passengers to Heathrow have in fact to undertake a shuttle journey, which is about as long as the journey they would undertake from uh, Old Oak Common anyway. Reason two, uh, it adds another £2 billion to the costs, and very few people coming from the north actually want to go <laughs> directly to Heathrow. Almost all of those who want to go would go via Old Oak Common, so the return on that £2 billion is minuscule. Thirdly, for the 94% of passengers who use the high-speed line to go into London and are not wanting to go to Heathrow, there is a four-minute addition to every single journey uh, if you route the, the, uh, the line through Heathrow, wherever Heathrow is, rather than taking it further east down to uh, uh, Old Oak Common and then into central London. For Heathrow passengers, though, Old Oak Common is a transformation. You will arrive at Old Oak Common, go over a bridge, 10 minutes to any of the terminals in uh, Heathrow. At the moment, if you're coming down from the north uh, of England, you come into either King's Cross uh, or to Euston. Both of those are an absolute nightmare to get to Heathrow from. They have very poor tube connections, there aren't direct, direct routes, you have one way or another to get to Paddington, which from Euston means crossing the Euston Road, going to Euston Square, getting on the Circle Line, then going to Paddington, then going out. So it is a transformation in, uh, in, in the links with Heathrow, but the cost-benefit it definitely uh, uh, favours going via Old Oak Common and not seeking to take the line directly to Heathrow, wherever Heathrow Fine. is for the purposes of a station. So, th thank you very much, Andrew. If anybody's not sure where the nearest tube station is... <laughs> in inflation. Um, I think that um, we're in this very awkward place where we're worrying about both inflation and deflation, um, both in the UK and globally, and that's that's why we have this volatile period you know, where the bell curve of probabilities is much flatter and the two tails are much fatter. Um, the US clearly is worrying about deflation. Europe is clearly worrying uh, about inflation. And of course, in emerging markets in Asia, they already have it. So this is something that we should be worrying about. But the best analysis that I've seen uh, on inflation is, in fact, from Martin Wolf. Editorial, um, in, in a piece that I think I would recommend you read where he looks at the bond yields and inflation and shows that if you strip out the inflation that is being driven by, you know, essentially emerging markets to scramble for resources, um, uh, whether it's food, water, commodities, uh, and uh, and any other type of one-off event like VAT, um, VAT increases, that the underlying inflation levels are not yet at any point that we should be worrying about, but of course in this year and next year as um, as we uh, exit from stimulus, this is this is going to be the, the one major risk. Terry? 
Want to talk about inflation well, in the UK? I, f- I find if you strip out the bad stuff, things are always quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I actually did mention inflation twice, once in the context of quantitative easing and once in the context of China. Uh, and it must be clear that we actually do have inflation. It's just that the official measures, by and large, ignore most of the things that are, that are inflationary. Um, I mean, one of the things I think you uh, need to bear in mind is that for the vast majority of the population of the world, the prices of the everyday things that they consume, the, uh, the, the clothes that they wear that, uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, have got cotton in them and the, uh, the corn and the wheat and the sugar that they, uh, they consume in their food and the, uh, the gasoline that they take, the price of that dropping isn't a problem for them. It's the opposite of a problem. Uh, and so, you know, when people are worrying about this, they worry about deflation probably rather more than they should. Um, to directly answer Neil's question, I'm not actually lending any of my money to the government at 3% or any of my clients' money at 3%, and I think it's a, a bizarrely stupid idea to do so, to lend uh, long-term money to governments at any time in history at that kind of rate. Um, there's tremendous polarization about views on inflation, deflation in the U.S. right now. I mean, polarization about that, like everything else. Um, one thing I find fascinating is that, you know, although it, you only have to go back to 1994 to see what happens um, when you suddenly get a dramatic swing in yields in the U.S. markets, mm-hmm. um, right now an astonishingly large number of people appear to be entirely unhedged against that in the U.S. economy. Personally, I think that there is quite a significant chance of a pretty bumpy um, tumultuous period in the Treasury's market, and I think that's extremely concerning. Next question. Um, Okay, let's go right to the back. Uh, Claire Fox, Institute of Ideas. Um, I just wondered what the panel thought were the impacts of kind of broader cultural uh, factors. I'm thinking particularly of a kind of dissolution with uh, wealth creation that we see particularly in the UK. I was just looking at the um, consultation on well-being and happiness, and very much at the heart of that is the idea that there's far more to life than money and the wealth creation is actually not as important as a lot of other things, and you only have to talk to a new generation of young people to find out that they're going along with banker bashing and just think wealth creation is a complete waste of time. Do you think that will have any impact at all? Okay. Uh, we've certainly seen those kind of factors stopping Heathrow being built. All right, okay. Well, lady in the front. Uh, Jessica Price-Jones. I'm wondering whether the panel think that the UK is going to be more or less globally relevant in 2011. Okay. And... Uh, one more question. Hi, uh, my name is Christopher Wilder. I run the Foreign Press Association. None of you um, has mentioned the biggest news event of the year, certainly judging by international yeah. media interest, which of course is the royal wedding. Um, I, I, it's looking as though it's going to be the biggest OB ever. I just wonder whether you think it's a lot of froth or whether it actually says anything interesting about right. this country and how it's seen in the world. I, I think that's probably linked to the question two, actually. But anyway. Uh, so, and then Philip Stevens at the front. We'll take four. four. Keep the pace going. Um, I just have a question for Andrew, actually, which is, although I can't not but agree with my editor that uh, the coalition will survive this year, um, I wonder whether the Liberal Party will survive. The history of uh, previous coalitions is one where the Liberal Party uh, splits, and it seems to me perfectly reasonable to see the possibility that even though they'd be Turkey's voting for Christmas, to, to use the cliche, um, enough the Liberal Democrats may pull away to, to cause a split. But the other thing, and I think more interesting, is that talking about decoupling, what strikes me is how uh, Scotland um, has been decoupling itself um, from the rest of the United Kingdom. 
and it seems to me one of some of the more interesting elections this year may actually be the elections to the Scottish Parliament, although no one down here ever pays much attention. And I'd just be interested in Andrew's views on where Scotland is heading um, without a Conservative Party, as far as one can see. Okay, Andrew, why don't you take that question? Um, Sriti, you can take perhaps the disillusion with wealth, um, UK less relevant, and obviously have strong thoughts on the role of Medding. So, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, Terry, as you wish. I, I just need to say one thing about the yeah, Royal Wedding. The uh, oh, Institute you. for Government has offices at Two Thousand <coughs> Gardens, which have the most splendid view over the Mall. So if any of you are wanting to rent a really fantastic vantage point, you know, have a word with me after, and I'll, I'll give you a special deal. Uh, on, the, on the point about the uh, politics of 2011 and Scotland, uh, devolution, I think, has been one of the great success stories of the, of the United Kingdom in the last uh, 15 years. Scotland, as, as Philip mentioned, but also uh, Wales and, of course, supremely Northern Ireland. For the first time since Gladstone first started grappling with how to constitute a devolved United Kingdom in the 1880s, uh, we've actually made a success of it and produced what looks to be a stable uh, governing culture and set of governing institutions within the UK that recognise its diversity. So far as Scotland is concerned, in terms of domestic policy, that means to all intents and purposes it operates as an independent country. In terms of domestic policy, except for, uh, but this is a fairly big exception, uh, tax and its, its tax regime. It's a big exception. But in terms of the actual decisions about the allocation of funding, policies that follow from that, and so on, it operates independently. When I was <laughs> schools minister and then transport secretary, apart from cross-border uh, transport links to all intents and purposes uh, Scotland managed its own affairs uh, it, it works it works extremely well and it's much better than the two alternatives which is constant and really deep cultural as well as political tension between Scotland and England which is what happened before or what I think may well have happened if we hadn't found a successful devolved settlement which was independence so it does operate in separately I don't think whatever happens in Scotland in May uh, which could include, uh, ironically, uh, a lab-lib government of some kind. It could well happen in Scotland after May. I don't think that will make any difference to the politics of London. The fact that the Conservatives barely exist in Scotland doesn't make much difference to the way that the Conservatives operate in London. I think we should just heave, those of us who are concerned about the future of uh, integrity of this country, should just heave a great sigh of relief that devolution has worked effectively as it, uh, as it uh, does and not worry. Shriti, uh, UK more or less relevant in 2011 and disillusioned with wealth? Um, I think the UK will be less relevant in 2011. That is potentially a blessing in disguise because it won't be a crisis country, it won't be in the middle of the Eurozone crisis, it won't um, have the same um, uh, problems that the US has. Uh, we're not in an election year, so actually all in all, we're not going to be at the centre of, uh, of things. I also have to say that um, we have a coalition government who are actually doing commendable jobs on, on lots of different fronts, but they're not the most internationally engaged, and I've sort of seen that in, in practice, so to speak, um, at the G20, so they don't really have this burning desire to be uh, dealing with some of the global issues, which I do think, in fact, will have a major impact on the UK economy. I do think that they ought to be more um, interested. Do you, do you think that stems from the Prime Minister, or is it just we have a, a rather sort of little English... The, uh, the, the, we have, there are other figures who are less internationally minded. Um, I, <laughs> I think that it does, you know, start at the top, but I do think that 
there, you know, we've got there's a big agenda domestically as well. So perhaps it's just the uh, the attention is uh, is elsewhere. I'm trying to be I'll diplomatic. Good. Can I just say yeah. on Can I just say on um, on wealth creation? I think you shouldn't uh, uh, you shouldn't uh, suggest that people are disillusioned with wealth creation or enterprise. They're not. They're disillusioned with banker bonuses, where there is a feeling that that wealth creation is not justified and not based on merit. They're completely different things. Yeah, Terry. Um, I think wealth, uh, if you take it in its uh, its simple definition of sort of money, uh, is um, in terms of uh, people's happiness from it, is a, a parabola, if you like, a curve. I think um, too little of it makes you unhappy, and too much of it makes you unhappy. And uh, the bit in the middle is really quite good, I think, for most people. Uh, and so the the vast majority of people who operate in the area where they've got too little um, really do want to aspire to being in the, in the middle bit, uh, and I think they will continue to. Uh, I think you also have to be careful how you define wealth. I think um, wealth isn't just about doing an Excel spreadsheet with a number at the bottom. It's actually really about people having access to decent goods and services that they can afford to pay for. And I think the vast majority of people have and will continue to define happiness as having those goods and services that they can effectively pay for. Okay, quick straw poll on the panel. Um, Bob Diamond um, said this week that he thought that the period of remorse on banker, banking for the banking industry and bankers' bonus should be over. Uh, does the panel think that that will be, in fact, the effect? The period of remorse in, will end officially in 2011. Do you, I think, do you think I'm not sure there was enough remorse, or and actually, I'm not particularly interested in remorse. I'd like time for change rather than time for remorse. Really, uh, I'm with Trisha. I'd never noticed the remorse, so it's been a bit difficult for it to end. Terry, <laughs> nope. Um, in the US, for the most part, there's less anger about the banker bonuses per se, but there's more anger about general issues of rising inequality. And I just want to say one thing about the um, previous question to do with wealth, which is that um, back in the 1930s, um, the 1920s boom and the stock market crash was followed by a period of considerable income equalization. Income dispar disparities were actually reduced. And the popular media was full of stories about bankers throwing themselves out of skyscrapers and um, you know, selling apples on the streets. Which was welcomed. Well, which is kind of was. Anyway, Alan Greenspan recently um, observed in a dinner that um, he didn't know any bankers personally who'd actually lost their houses as a result of the recent stock market crash. And there certainly hasn't been stories about people throwing themselves out of skyscrapers. On the contrary, for the most part, not only have bonuses been paid, but Wall Street seemed to be doing pretty well. And that cuts to the core of the problems about rising inequality in America now. Okay, anybody want to say a word on the royal wedding, please? No. <laughs> I hope the FT won't report it. I've got one thing. Okay, please. I did a media search the other day for a speech I gave about financial regulation and discovered there's been 4,900 mentions of the royal wedding recently um, in the Western media in the last three months, and there were 200 mentions of financial reform, or Basel, anyway. Any boost to the British economy from the royal wedding, Terry? Um, yes, sales of cheap uh, China will soar. So, so I think the, uh, the population of Stoke-on-Trent, if they're in any way still associated with the making of China, will be better. But uh, I rather suspect China is in fact made in China now, funnily enough. <laughs> Fine. Yes, the two gentlemen. Yep. William Horsley, journalist. Uh, Lionel, I'd like to ask you and the panel about the other decoupling between uh, Russia and uh, democratic uh, Europe, uh, malign influence uh, we saw last uh, a couple of years ago in Georgia, now Ukraine, mm -hmm. succession coming up of a, of a sort, uh, Putin set apparently to be in office longer than Stalin. Uh, what does the next chapter hold for us? 
Thanks, uh, Dermot Finch. What's the panel's advice to Ed Miliband and Alan Johnson on shaping the opposition's economic policy? Um, prediction in two. The question to Dale Yeah, two thousand eleven. It is. It's likely that we will know whether um, Prime Minister Putin will seek um, a third term as president. Um, I don't think that's that's an absolute. That it's an absolute given that Medvedev um, will step aside. Um, one is told, one hears that his wife really does enjoy being Mrs. President of Russia. On a more serious note, I think that you shouldn't just look at, well, you, you referred to malign influence in Ukraine and also to a degree Belarus. Actually, the real, I think the real story here is the degree to which there is now uh, some uh, reaction and opposition in Russia to the heavy-handed tactics. Uh, employed in certain areas. I mean, they've obviously taken out Khodorkovsky. Uh, they've re re arrested just the other week um, the former mayor of Nizhny Novgorod, um, Nemtsov. Um, and th this is indeed worrying. Um, and I suppose the, the second thought is, um, does that affect Obama's declaration that he wanted to reset relations with the US, uh, with, with Russia? Probably yes. Can I have a go, Miliband? Yeah, Miliband. Advice to Ed Miliband. Can I have a go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this means that I am, um, this form of the advice means that I'll never be able to run for elected office, but I'm not terribly worried about that. Uh, my suggestion would be confess that you got it wrong. Um, I mean, the good thing is in confessing you got it wrong, you can throw Gordon in front of the bus, uh, which is, I think will be uh, pleasing. But, uh, you know, it, the, the economic situation was not solely caused by a global financial crisis. You were running a deficit from 2002 when the global financial crisis was at least five, if not six years away from development. So admit that you got it wrong, and, uh, because I think in, inevitably in life, whenever you're trying to, uh, to deal with the difficult situation that, uh, that has been engineered, the first thing you have to do is accept that the bits that you've got Robin confess to it, otherwise you cannot move on. Andrew, do, is that what he should do? Um, and should he stick with his, this 50p in the pound tax rate throughout the Parliament? Well, he should certainly stick with it while the public finances are, are in the position that they're in. But the, the mantra I always uh, took to heart from Tony Blair, which he used to repeat uh, uh, a lot, was uh, the best uh, policy is the best politics. The, the big mistake that Labour would make would be to put it on the side of whatever group of protesters happens to be mobilising against whatever cuts are uh, controversial at any given period of time. Labour will only be credible in an election in four and a half years' time if it's credible on deficit reduction, has a credible economic policy, and is in particular credible with Middle England on tax. And that can only be the case if it has a credible deficit reduction strategy itself over the next four and a half years. Now, it seems to me that there's a legitimate debate to be had between what can be termed the Alistair Darling strategy and the Osborne strategy. Do you eliminate, seek to eliminate the structural deficit in one parliament, or do you do as Alistair was seeking to do to, to, to halve it? Uh, to halve the overall deficit in the course of the Parliament. There's a proper debate to be had over that. But if you're going to do the Alistair Darling strategy, as I know very well from having uh, poured over what this, uh, this meant in detail for my own department uh, before the election, there would have had to be very significant and early uh, cuts. And we were gearing up for what those meant. And I think an acid test for Alistair and Alan will be whether over the course of the next two to three years, uh, they are frank about the cuts that they themselves support and therefore uh, that they can go into the next election with a, a credible economic and, and tax policy. 
Right. Shruti, there was a reference to Gordon Brown's economic record um, as a chief advisor to... During the crisis, but yeah. I, I, I do think, Terry, that it would be absolutely ludicrous to suggest that the ma major proportion of the deficit didn't come from the financial crisis. I mean, that's just factually inaccurate. But the one thing that I did, I completely agree with Andrew's uh, advice to Ed Miliband, but the one thing I would add in addition is that we have to focus on the implementation of the cuts. The problem with uh, the deficit reduction plan of the current government um, is not just net whether it's too big, too quick in terms of the absolute numbers, but the fact is that the machinery of government does not move quickly enough and cannot plan with the level of speed the cuts have, and therefore you won't be cutting smartly. You will just be kind of, kind of steamrolling through, cutting the good and the bad, and the fear that I have is, is it will cut some of the things that we'll, we need for productivity and growth in the future. Do okay. reply? Yes, indeed. Yeah, um, I accept that a very large part of the deficit obviously came from a response to the financial crisis. Thank uh, you. Uh, but could you explain the rationale behind the deficit that was engineered between 2002 and 2007 at uh, a time of, uh, of a credit-induced boom? Yeah, this is a truly interactive panel here. <laughs> <laughs> there was clearly, clearly uh, a structural deficit during that period. It was not insurmountable. It could have been dealt with, but and it did add to the problem, but the the rationale was public investment for future productivity. But clearly, the, you have to have a sense of proportion about this. That, the, the contribution of that, relative to the contribution of the financial crisis, was, yeah. you know... Okay, we've got room for two last questions. Uh, maybe three if there's a very, very quick Gent lady in the front, and then we're going to have to wrap Jessica this up. Jessica Carson. Um, I'm interested in the relative performance of the emerging markets, in particular Brazil, which hasn't been mentioned much, and also some of the bigger African economies. Okay, next. Spencer Neal, New Statesman. Um, the panel's not mentioned anything about uh, youth unemployment, which is approaching a million in this country, um, and could well have a, an impact perhaps on uh, consumer uh, appetite um, and perhaps relates to the uh, the idea of uh, jobless growth. And I just wondered what the panel had to say about youth okay. unemployment. Ne next, there's, is there one other question from anyone? Yes, the gentleman there. And then we'll have to wrap it up. Peter York, I'd like to ask Jill and Ted about the Tea Party and what she thinks it really is. Is it just an expression of those tensions and polarities in America that you've talked about? Or is it a prime mover in its own right that will ha have continuing impact through this year and the next? And if okay. it is a prime mover, who's moving it? Yeah. If we assume that the people who front it aren't the movers there. Okay, well, Tea Party for Gillian, youth unemployment perhaps, Andrew, and then emerging markets, Terry or Shriti. Yeah. Um, okay. uh, so do you want to take the uh, youth unemployment first? Um, uh, well, it's clearly a huge challenge. Uh, we've got to make apprenticeships work in this country, which we haven't done historically, and that's a, a, a continuing big challenge. We have still got to have a transformation in school standards. We still turn out... It's still the case in 2011 that only half of 16-year-olds, half, leave school at 16 or move on to further education with five decent GCSEs, including English and maths, which is that the pretty well the basic level to be effective in employment in any uh, semi-skilled job or indeed even in a, a job in the caring professions or, or other big employment sectors into the future. So uh, it, it's very, very important that in those policies that uh, 
uh, will generate skill growth and school standards, that we're not complacent and that uh, continued uh, radicalism is required. My, my own view is, as having been engaged in this for 10 years, is that we're barely at, at the beginnings of what needs to be a transformation, a transformation in the quality of education, particularly in, uh, 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 in uh, those, those half of uh, comprehensive schools that were basically failing and, and a good third of them still are very low levels of performance. We need a transformation there, and we need a wholly new social, uh, political, and economic movement to link employers, public and private sector, to worthwhile apprenticeships that themselves generate significant new skills, long-term skill development, and engage uh, youngsters uh, in, in, in a really serious way. Okay, Shriti, Brazil was probably one of the great uh, sto success stories the last five years under Lula. New president Dilma Rousseff uh, this year. Market feels perhaps a bit toppy. Yeah, I, I think that Brazil is going to have a rocky year, and I think inflation in Brazil is going to be uh, a problem. Uh, also, she is more interventionist than um, than Luland uh, doesn't have that lightness of touch. So I think it's going to be not the, not the greatest year for Brazil. Africa, my, uh, and I think I think Africa. I think it's going to be a great decade for Africa. For the first time, there are a number of African countries that have actually uh, on a, have have growth, have volition uh, velocity in their growth growth. And in fact, one of the big um, outcomes of Seoul, which of course nobody reported except for a small article in the FT, um, was that um, development was discussed in particular investment in infrastructure, which is the big mis missing piece in Africa, uh, from surplus countries. And that would be a really productive use of surplus countries' uh, uh, reserves going into African infrastructure, because that's what's really holding back um, a growth. I think it's going to be a pretty dynamic year and they're going to be a, a source of growth. Can I just say on youth unemployment, I think this will be the single worst legacy um, of the financial crisis and of this government unless they do something about it because as we know from the 1980s, once you have you, a group of people below the age of 22 unemployed, they're actually scarred for life. It has a really serious effect on their productive cap capacity in the future, and it's almost permanent unless you can do something about it now, and I think that is what the government is really failing on. Thanks, Shriti. Uh, Terry? Uh, yeah, the uh, emerging markets thing is interesting, because last year uh, emerging markets were a big attractor of investment flows from investors, and equally, to some degree, failed to perform. And putting the, that, those facts together, I th the stock market can be many things. I mean, quite often it's just a, a sort of a, a mechanism for measuring uh, strange things like uh, the psychology of participants. But it can also be a predictive mechanism. And I rather suspect in this case it is actually a forward predictive mechanism and they're going to have a pretty rough ride uh, in the next year or two. Tea Party. Um, well, the Tea Party is absolutely fascinating at the moment. Um, I took part in a discussion on Friday in Washington about this, and the big question people are asking then is, is this part of a political realignment, i.e. swing to the right, or a disalignment, i.e. people are getting fed up with all politics and essentially it's a protest vote? Um, I suspect it's a mixture of the two, but I think it's a protest in many ways which is particularly important at the moment because Obama swept the power two years ago very much on anti-establishment protest feelings and essentially what happened in the midterms was another very, very large angry protest vote. And if you look at what people are angry about and protesting, it's a huge ragbag of things ranging from fury with the Fed and the debasement of the currency. I mean, astonishingly, 60% of Americans now tell polls that they think the Fed should either be reformed or abolished. Um, 
you've got protests on things like healthcare. I mean, the whole ragbag of stuff. Um, however, it's not the loony fringe. They do t tap into um, some mainstream themes which are felt much more broadly than that. And to my mind, I mean, at the moment, who's leading it? It's very hard to pinpoint any leaders precisely because it is a sort of guttural shriek against a system of protest. But to my mind, the big question of 2011 is, can they turn from protest into a positive agenda? Can they actually articulate an agenda? And now that there are parts of the Republican Party which feel that they have a large debt to the Tea Party and are now sitting in Washington, what will happen to them when they start to be incorporated more in the mainstream of the politics? Okay, Gillian, I'm going to put yeah. you on the spot. Is Sarah Palin going to declare she's running for president this year? I sat recently with some Chinese, senior Chinese officials who were told by Republican Party people that there was a chance that Sarah Palin could, um, could be the candidate and their faces were just a joy to behold because for senior people in Beijing to imagine that Palin could be a candidate was just so shocking. Um, I would put it, I thought the chance of her being the candidate, I would put it about sort of 30 to 40% personally, so unlikely but possible. Can I ask Julian a question about the shooting and where, where you think the mood is? The mood is angry, shocked and polarised and whether or not the... Um, the gunman was a lone loony, the fact that it stirred up even more anger um, post the event amongst on all sides is very telling. Very interesting thing, you know, the, the left has responded to a lot of the anger and debate with humour. If you watch programmes like um, um, groups John like Stewart. networks like um, MSNBC um, or John Stewart, the right has responded with anger. There's not a lot of humour on Fox TV these days. Um, and either way, it's a very emotional, very polarised climate. Okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the panel for an excellent discussion, and thank you for coming.